Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're beginning our discussion of Wolf's novella For Lesson, which I think I would have to describe as traumatic and nightmarish. Uh, this story is full of puzzles and mysteries. It is deeply, deeply, and I, I think also probably scathingly political. And there is more than a little bit of religion. And so we've got a lot to talk about. In fact, we have so much to talk about that we've decided to split this conversation into two episodes, which we didn't think we were going to do when we got started on this story. So this episode, we're going to talk broadly about the world of the story and try to identify the themes and really focus on the the social critique in this story. And then next time we'll get into the religion and we'll really dig in on the the puzzles and mysteries. So Brandon, go ahead and uh, get us into this. Yeah, let's get into For Lesson, which I think you're right to say is just really traumatic and scathing, and it's a dark satire of modern working life. And there's a few things we have to do with the discussion, but I think it's best with this story if we start with the big picture and then move our way down to the questions that Wolf raises at the end of the story, so that we'll be really more equipped to answer them rather than starting off with them and then having to backfill all the information. The questions at the end of the story are really about how best to explain For Lesson's world. Why is it the way it is? And also about whether or not his life's work and the meaning derived from it could outweigh the suffering he experienced in this life. So that's what we're circling around as we broadly look at the story that Wolf has written. I do also want to mention that this story appears in the best of Gene Wolf with an afterword by Wolf that I want to use to kind of help preface our conversation here. Wolf says this about the story that he wrote. There are men, I have known a good many, who will work all their lives for the same Fortune 500 company. They have families to support and no skills that will permit them to leave and support their families by other means in another place. Their work is of little value because few, if any, assignments of value come to them. They spend an amazing amount of time trying to find something useful to do, and failing that, just trying to look busy. In time, their lives end, as all lives do. As this world reckons things, they have spent 8,000 days, perhaps, at work. But in a clearer air, it has all been the same day. The story you have just read is my tribute to them. We also know that this story was published about two years after Wolf left Procter & Gamble while he was at Plant Engineering. And I'd like, to, I'd like us to keep all of this in mind uh, as we discuss this story, because at the very end, I want to ask whether or not this story really feels like a tribute or why Wolf would position the story as a tribute for an audience in the best of Gene Wolf. In the introduction to the story in Castle of Days, he just asks that his readers think about men who bring a bag lunch to work or maybe a lunch in their suitcase every day and, and maybe have some empathy for them as they see them uh, going in and out of their businesses. Uh, it's not a very big intro. The most we get from the story is really, is really the afterword in the best of Gene Wolf. But before we get to the end of the conversation, we'll start at the beginning. So we're going to start with the world building and see how this world is structured and what's going on in it. For Lesson is our point of view character, and he wakes up at the beginning of the story with a mind like a blank slate. We talked about this in the recap. He's a tabula rasa. And it's through his eyes that we encounter this whole world. And For Lesson encounters the other people in the world really under three uh, major social situations or constructs. It's his home life, his 
civic life or social life and his work life. And it's really through work life that most of the story unfolds. So I want to start there again in the you know vein of starting big and then kind of getting smaller to examine really what makes up the world of for lesson. So the first question I want to ask you, Glenn, is really general. I just want to ask you, what stands out to you other than for lessons, whole career taking place over the course of a single day, you know, what really stands out to you about the corporate world that's depicted in this story? I have a few specific questions, but I thought I'd just kick it off with this really more general one. Well, I think the real standout point for me is just the pointlessness of it, the meaninglessness of everything that for lesson does, but also everyone else as, as well. It's not just him. He's our point of view character. He's our, our, He's, he's how we access this world. He also is kind of the straight man in, in this world. And so we get this sort of wry observational humor from him, uh, thinking about what creativity actually means and, and so on. But everyone else has to be going through this too, right? Nobody that we meet in this story, or at least nobody that we meet at MPP is doing anything that's of any use or any value to anyone that provides any meaning to their lives uh, in in any way. And so there's a sense that all of it is just fake. It's all a sham. People here are just putting on a performance for each other for for some reason, right? They could actually all just say, yeah, this is a stupid way to live our lives. We don't actually need to be doing this in order to have a society, have a civilization for us to have families and have material, uh, a material existence like, you know, sustenance and shelter and so on. We could go do something else, something that adds value to the world instead of uh, carrying on in this prison where we're all pretending like we're doing something meaningful. I mean, I think that that's how I would characterize MPP. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we're, I think it's really evident in the way that Wolf uses the language of the other managers in the story. We talked a lot about in the recap episodes about these empty metaphors that refer to real activities that people do with their bodies or for leisure or for enjoyment. And yet they're just metaphors about nothing that are supposed to give for lesson and other workers some guidance about what's expected of them. And that, that emptiness is, is a core part of the way these people even talk to each other. It is an extraordinarily empty sort of place and maybe even a little vicious to that, um, towards the people who engage in the labor, as we see in the scene before they go to the creativity meeting where it's, uh, a good worker is one who gets hurt and continues working. That's, not good for anybody to to have that callous attitude towards seeing somebody get hurt and then say, well, they're keeping our profits and efficiency up. So that is a good. It's a, it's a world that has no concept of the good, I think, that that for lesson is living in. I think we can even track that with the different metaphors that these various managers are using. All of the metaphors that they use are about things that are, uh, are, are would make up what we would describe as the good life, right? That you've you've done a, a task, you've created something in the world as a, a means of of having shelter and food and so on in the world, and also have a place in the community. And then that's a part of having a good life, of course. But then also there's leisure is a huge part of the idea of the good life, right? For all of us, this is this is true, right? You and I are engaged in a leisure activity at this moment. And all of the metaphors that these managers use are about this too. They're about uh, baseball and football, and they're about sailing, they're about skiing. So what this suggests is that these three managers 
enjoy those activities, enjoy those hobbies, but yet we don't actually see that they are doing those or that they even have any actual real interest in them other than the fact that they're using these metaphors all the time, right? Fields, uh, who talks about baseball and especially talks about football and is described as kind of looking, I think, like uh, something like a linebacker. In fact, it doesn't ever actually talk in any way about you know a recent game or an upcoming game that he's excited about or, or his time as a football player. It's just that these are the metaphors through which he views the world. But there's no sense that this interest in sports or the interest in sailing, the interest in skiing is actually providing any semblance of a good life, that this is occupying any kind of leisure or providing any type of joy for these people. Right. The language is used to convey to the audience, who whoever that is, it's for lesson in this instance, but they're giving these pitch maybe to other people as well, that work is leisure, but we don't have the right language to talk about work as leisure because we call it work, which is at least in, in a... In a sort of naive sense, the opposite of leisure. And what these guys are doing is saying, is using language to cover up the fact that work is their leisure. They come in early to play cards and they uh, stay late and, and this has taken up their whole lives. And because of that, they hit on secretaries and they chat with each other and they go to stupid meetings and they admire one another for ways of getting out of meetings. And that, that this whole gamesmanship has really moved to the office and removed the possibility of leisure from their lives. And so they're using this language to describe their workplace as if it is a place of leisure. And so the whole idea of leisure has no place here in this society. Right. There's a real sense here that the only way that anybody's going to get any kind of leisure or really any kind of satisfaction at all is by taking it back from the company. There's this real sense of, of like indentured servitude here to the, the company where uh, the company is your entire life. It has to be the focus and you have to pretend like it's the most important thing that it's your number one identity is that you're an employee of this company. This is something we also saw uh, Wolf working with in a, a profound way in Hour of Trust. So the only recourse that any of these workers have is to kind of steal something of their own lives back from the company by, yeah, getting out of meetings uh, and uh, taking advantage of the the free coffee and sandwiches in this uh, this in this management managing pseudo game that they're that they're playing. Uh, and maybe unfortunately for them, they're allowed to actually smoke at work. So even a smoke break isn't a thing that they actually get. But you and I, of course, have worked together in an environment where uh, a disproportionate number of people smoked because this was a way you could walk away from your desk several times a day and just stand outside and exist as a real person. Yeah. And if you were real good at smoking, you could be out for 50 minutes every hour <laughs> and only be at your desk for 10 minutes. We knew people like that for uh, sure. And we admired those people. Yeah, those were yeah. the people we admired. <laughs> yeah. I think the only person in this book that we see in this story that we see about to engage in any leisure activity is Frick, who's going to play golf. And somehow the idea here is that, well, you, you sacrifice your life. Maybe you even die at your desk, and that's admirable. But if you make it up high enough, you can leave work early and nobody can tell you no. And it, it's that kind of attitude where uh, dignity, humanity, the, the kind of ideas about freedom and what makes a human being a human being, what rights they have, only exists for the elite and wealthy. And everybody else has to work until they get to that point. And once they do, then they can enjoy their lives. But until they do, somebody else 
owns them. And that's basically the message here with, with Frick playing golf at the retirement party. Absolutely. Right? Even Frick has to hide that fact, right? It's his secretary who knows that he's going to go play golf. And she kind of lets that slip to Forlassen on his way in because Frick doesn't say that at all. And in fact, when we meet him, he makes this big speech about how it's hard at the top that Forlassen has had it easier, even though actually Forlassen doesn't have the ability to just say, I'm knocking off early tonight so I can play golf uh, before I go home. He doesn't have that power. Frick clearly does, but Frick explains that his job is so stressful and so uh, so emotionally and psychologically difficult that he wishes he was still a peon. Of course, he doesn't, but he has to have this attitude. He has to take on this persona that it's harder to be ma- to be management. It's harder to be at the highest echelon than it is at the the bottom. Even so, even just masking the fact that he's earned some rewards. Yeah, it is a really sharp criticism of kind of the American attitude towards work that Wolf was coming into contact with, I think, probably at his time at at Procter & Gamble. We talked a little bit about, you know, the kind of games and trainings that exist in here. We we brought up Bet Your Life, which is the the management managing real life pseudo game that seems to have maybe something to do with the stock market, but it's not really clear what this thing is. But there's other things going on here. There's the creativity meeting and there's the leadership and like management questionnaire. And I just want to look at these three things to just look more at what this work world is like. The management questionnaire uh, put out by Eric Fairchild is clearly designed to help another manager out of a, a jam he doesn't want to be responsible for managing. It's graded by a computer, so it's graded anonymously, and your contribution is graded. But it's clear that Eric Fairchild knows what the answer is that he wants and that he was trying to generate a consensus around it, around people giving him that answer, so that people can be subtly punished if they give the wrong answer, and that he can pass blame around if the solution fails. And to me, this is a this is a crazy, crazy situation. Nobody really wants to take responsibility for handling the the situation. And I want to read actually what what he suggests the answer to the problem is. Uh, and this is on page one twenty nine of castle of days. So the problem is basically that one of the secretaries really isn't fitting in well, and her work hasn't been satisfactory, but she hasn't been told this, and they can't hire new people to replace her, so they don't really know what to do. There's a number of checkboxes, and you can check more than one that that suggest a solution, but Eric says the answers are two and three, and this is what they are. The answers two and three both would indicate to her that her work has been satisfactory, but hint that she may be laid off and offer her a six weeks leave of absence without pay during which she may obtain further training. Uh, On the surface, these are entirely contradictory messages. One is your work is really good, but you know, we might not be able to keep you around, but we're going to give you six weeks off to get some training. And that doesn't gel in any way. Basically what it means is we're, facing you out. We're giving you six weeks. Uh, We're not going to pay you. Maybe we'll have you back, but I don't know. But your work is fine. It's just so, like, it's such a weak way to to manage another person. And, And for a lesson is disgusted by this. And the fact that this person is suggesting an answer and pretending not to, it's just full of this double, double speak and giving people contradictory messages to try to corral them in a, in a certain way. It's like a, 
they're basically giving her a trial layoff period. So I just want to know what you make of this this sort of solution to the problem, but also this whole idea of this leadership training through these management questionnaires. What what does this indicate to you about the work world that for lesson has been kind of thrust into? Well, it's really clear that what's going on at MPP is that everyone that we encounter at every level is just trying to fit in and to not get noticed in any negative way, right? And and to do just enough work to look busy all the time, but to not actually do any work that could ever be criticized, to do anything that could ever actually get you in trouble. And for a lesson, it's told this explicitly, right? Don't get in anyone's way and don't let me hear any complaints about you. It, there, were, there were never any positive in, injunctions. There it was never get down there and do really great work. Uh, take charge of these situations. Uh, do this sort of thing. Come up with a creative or innovative way to to do something new, right? something more effective, more efficient. None of that. It was don't get in anyone's way. Don't get in trouble. That that's it. That's how you succeed here. And it's clear that this is what Fairchild is doing as well, right? He is looking for affirmation that that making the least decision possible is the right thing to do, right? What he wants to do is for this problem to just go away so that one, he can't really be criticized for having taken any real action. And two, also so that he doesn't have to be bothered with actually doing this, right? He's just trying to keep everything the status quo as much as possible, right? No hiccups, just every day the same as as the next or every hour the same as the next, maybe here in this, this setup, so that he can just have a comfortable and calm and placid existence here in this company, right? This is about getting his coffee breaks, right? And in fact, we hear him on the phone sending his secretary to go get him a cup of coffee that's like the most important thing for him, right? It's the only thing he wants is to be left alone and have this cup of coffee. It's just like the smoke break that we were we were talking about. So I think that's one of the things that we're seeing here, right? Is to just do as little as possible and to just make as few ripples as possible. That's the management style of this company. Yeah, it's in the air you breathe. It's the it's the culture of the company, uh, and that that that's kind of how these cultures function in a lot of companies. Uh, and, and we talked a little bit about this in the recap episode, where if you have to write down, if you if you end up writing down how people actually interact in in a company and actually look at culture that way, and it's like this, that that company's culture would be described as terrible. But all the things they do write down have just enough positive spin to them to give the managers like plausible deniability if there's any problem. You know, like, yeah, the secretary doesn't really play ball. She doesn't like getting hit on. She doesn't like being flirted with. All she wants to do is her work. But her work is really easy. It's this clerical work. It's not that hard. So we added these other job responsibilities that include being flirted with and she, and we didn't write those down and she's not doing that. How do we let her go without, because we can't criticize her work. That's really the function of the question. And that is awful. I mean, that's just an awful environment to be in, to witness it, to experience it. Um, and to feel like your livelihood depends on maintaining that status quo so that you can keep your job and you can keep your children from starving. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a vile and tribal approach to, to life um, where your family is threatened, as his is in this story, uh, through the manuals. And so he just has to maintain the status quo in order to keep his family alive. But at the same time, 
if he dies at his, if he doesn't want to die at his desk, that's a little disappointing. Maybe he won't get the next promotion. It's 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 nightmarish. When you asked about the the Scantron leadership course here too, like what kind of leadership training is that, right? That seems absolutely ridiculous that uh, guys are just going to their desks at, at work. And this is a, like a daily part. This is a part of their daily routine is that you get one of these questions every day, or, you know, maybe, maybe it's every Tuesday, you get one of these questions that is, I, I guess, supposed to be teaching you something, right? It's giving you a problem and you have to figure out what is actually the best answer here, but it's not designed to actually teach anybody anything. Nobody sees what anybody else's answers are. There's no one who's really grading this Scantron test. No one is sitting down and talking with you about the choices that you made out of this multiple choice test to learn something about what are the the right ways to do things or even what is company policy in this matter, let alone what's actually the the right thing to do for uh, for the state of the business or for the people involved in this problem. So this is just a way for the, the company to say, oh, yes, we do leadership training, of course, uh, without actually doing any kind of leadership training. It's totally anonymous. It's a, 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 a graded by a, a computer. You're just filling out a bubble on a Scantron test and nothing is at stake for it. But, you know, the company does leadership training. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, good for the good for the company, I guess. Um, let's talk about bet your life here. That, as we said, that's the management managing real life pseudo game, which is a lot of words to sort of un- unpack. Uh, it seems to have to do with the stock market. I think we have to take note of the time of day in Four Lessons Life that this takes place, which is really uh, after his promotion in the afternoon when he is upper middle management and he is between that and retiring. That's when he plays this this game, which seems to have to do with like stock trading or company trading or so- trading or something like that. It's really unclear to me. Um, but, you know, management, managing, this game is designed, it sounds like, for to be a stable for managers to give them something to do. It's like a manager kindergarten in a sense. Um, and calling it a real life pseudo game means that there are some real life impacts just like there are in trading stocks your money might adjust in some way or another but it's a pseudo game i mean like nobody has people oughtn't have all their money tied up in the stock market and if that's what you're doing with your time in the couple years before you retire just managing your money um you're it is a pseudo game you're just thinking about your retirement and what you're going to do for the rest of your life without work and you just manage this money so i just want to know like what your sense of this game is and also you know if you have any thoughts about why this is placed in the in the time of day it is if if it's different than what i think but also why the brown book the manual that's introduced in this scene is includes a selection of the story that we're reading just love to hear your thoughts on that I'll start by talking about the the name of this game, which I do find absolutely amazing, and I think we should we should parse it out a little bit more than that. So, management managing. I like what you're thinking there that this is about managing management in the sense of there are managers here who are just like they're in this room, they've got coffee and sandwiches, so they can't do anything bad while they're in there. That it is like a kindergarten, right? It's a little prison for managers that just can't screw anything up. It's like a little fishbowl. We'll just keep them in there. It's like a, like a kennel or something, I guess. Also, suddenly I'm speaking in like pet metaphors. I'm <laughs> turning into one of these managers 
years as we speak. Uh, but I, I guess I saw it as as intending to to say something about that you're learning how to manage managers, uh, which is what is happening as you're going up the the ladder, right? At, that at at for lessons level when he starts the day, I mean, yeah, he's a supervisor, but not a real supervisor, right? Because he's actually only maybe supervising labor, uh, though he, we never actually see him do anything, and he doesn't really go through that stack of papers and quite see what it is that that he's supposed to be doing in terms of managing and supervising people. But everyone in the company really seems to think that what it means to really be a manager is to be managing the management people. And so that was what I thought was going on there. The real life and pseudo game is so interesting because real and pseudo are opposites, right? It's either real or it's pseudo. And the whole point of calling something a game is to indicate that it is not real, that it is in fact pseudo, that it is play, that it it has meaning only, you know, in the game itself, but not meaning outside of that, not meaning in the real world, not meaning in real life. But this is a pseudo game. So it's not really a game, right? It's a game, but well, not really. So somehow something about this actually matters, and it pertains to real life in some way. And I think that that's I haven't quite worked all this out, and this is something I would love to hear from people about uh, on the forum. I haven't quite worked out what that quite means, but I think the fact that he gets the rule book for this, not really a game, and it is actually excerpts from his own life, from just earlier in the day in the rule book, suggests that, that this is kind of, uh, that, that, that this game, that maybe the choices that you make in this game have an actual effect on your real life. I mean, in the same way that we were kind of thinking about in in how I lost the Second World War and helped turn back the German invasion, that the game in the world of that story is actually the real world that we live in. There seems maybe to be something similar to that going on here, but it, it doesn't really ever come to any fruition as far as I can tell. I think it. I think it does come to some fruition in my reading of the story. You know, I. I think I, I brought up in our recap episodes about this sort of uh, chain of representations and and uh, the the world of the ideal in in the maybe pseudo platonic dialogue ion, uh, which is the further away you get from the ideal, the less value uh, think has. But the idea that this is a, a real life pseudo game, I think, cancels it out. It means it's actually just it's just real life. And the fact that they're trading stocks and stuff, I think it's a little bit about money management. But when you throw in the the brown book here, that, that is an excerpt from the story that we're reading, I think it, it, it indicates that the world is on some level a, a simulation. The world itself is a game. Um, and I wonder if Wolf is looking at the, the rules that we all have decided to play by and maintain the status quo of our society really functions like a simulation you said you said everybody anybody could uh, any of these managers could just say well this is dumb uh why are we all just doing this with all of our time it's not valuable but in in the kind of world that they live in that's being maybe simulated here i'm you know giving away my whole reading but that's all right we'll get to it at the (laughs) end again um the, the 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 world that's being simulated here, they can't really say no. They can't go to the house on the left. They can't break the rules driving the car. So the game, so the, the way the rules of society function this is the same way uh, a game would, that if you break them, you're just not allowed to play anymore. And the stakes are really high here. Uh, and all these people seem to think it's better to play than to not play. And we'll get deeper into that as the discussion goes on. 
and this is connected to to something else that troubles me about the fact that Four Lessons' whole career takes place in a single day. Uh, other people in his iteration or generation, the EF generation, some of them seem to start before him. Some of them die before him or get promoted around him. Um, and we know that time works in a very strange way in this story. But what do you think is going on with the general spa- generational spacing here? So the the GHs come in, you know, like after lunch when he's a manager. Do you think that that first GH who comes in and takes four lessons desk, do you think it's uh, 07000 hours for him and that time is relative to each person? And that generations function sort of the same way they do for us, which is like a 10 to 12 year span of time? Or do you think that time is stable for the whole of this civilization? I think it's always daytime. I don't think there is ever any night in this world and that it's different for everybody. We don't really know when Frick goes to work, but we know but we know that Frick is his neighbor. And at the end of the story, when for lesson is leaving, people are just coming in and starting work. So I, I just want to know your thoughts on this because it, it really is something that seems inconsistent to me in this story is the way that Wolf presents time for the society. Um, and I have some solutions to that, but I, I just wonder what your thoughts are. Well, I think the fundamental thing that we would have to answer to really get at this question is, are these people real or is for lesson the only real person here? We're not doing that at this part of the discussion yet, but I just want to acknowledge that we might change our minds about what we think is actually going on once we've answered that question a, a little bit later in the, the discussion outline. But definitely what is happening here, right, is simply that Wolf is scaling down an entire 30-year career at a Fortune 500 company into a single day. And so, yeah, well, he gets to the afternoon and 15 years have passed. So uh, in the in the analogy, right? And so, of course, new people are going to be coming in and for lesson has been promoted at least once. And so it's his job now to actually like be giving orientations to the the new kids who've just graduated from college and and so on but it does not graph very easily onto the idea of a single day especially if we're thinking that these people are all actually real and that they've all just woken up as adults with an orientation binder and a wife they've never met and kids they might never see the same way that for lesson has so I think the question of is it morning for the GHs when they when they come in in the afternoon and then when Forlesson leaves again and he sees this young couple uh, kissing goodbye as they they go their separate ways once they've gotten to to work is that morning for them as well or is their simulation start differently you start work in the afternoon today it's not work for you doesn't start at 070 hours or you know 7 a.m. I guess might be how we would read that uh, but that it starts later. I like your reading that it, it it's always daytime and that maybe what time of day it actually is, is uh, subjective. And I think there are some things that we can point to where Wolf is playing around with that, right? For one, the one of the, the first tangible object that we're really introduced to in this story is a watch. A big deal is made of the fact that uh, Emmanuel and Edna Forlesson only have a single watch between them that they have to share. And in fact, they pass uh, ownership of it or possession of it back and forth in, in the story, right? Forlesson has it to start, then he goes home for lunch and he gives it to, to Edna and makes a big deal about the fact that, well, there are clocks everywhere at MPP and it doesn't he doesn't need a watch for 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 that because the only place where he he doesn't have a 
clock, doesn't have a, a timekeeping device, is actually in his car. And knowing what time it is doesn't mean that he can get to work any faster. So it, it, it's a useless thing for him. And so I think that's one place where Wolf is is pointing out that there might be some subjectivity to, to time here. But no matter how we see the, the time functioning here, it's very clear that there is some things are being staggered, that people are showing up at different points in what is artificially a single day or in the midst of a, a single lifespan. And so one wonders even if some of the EF people started at a different time than Forlesson did. And that seems to be the case. It seems that Fields starts at the same time that he does and that they're actually uh, quite the same age at that time. But I have to wonder if in the morning, Forlesson's morning, when he sees Frick in the, the window across the way, if Frick has gone home on his lunch break, right? Because otherwise, how does Frick have this 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 position or something something like that, that he must have started at a different time I, i'm not sure if that's the case or not yeah it's very confusing because we also saw in the conversation with frick that they were in school together they were kids together they played kick the can or, or whatever a prisoner base uh that they played and that even though they're the same age th- maybe frick had different advantages or some way or started his adulthood earlier or there was something like that and maybe this is something that wolf experienced um being a soldier for a little while and coming home, restarting college or continuing his education and starting his adult life after people of his same generation um, or around the same age of him who he maybe saw were ahead of him and cared a little bit more about the business world because they didn't go fight in a war. And I want, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to uh, turn the story into a biography of Wolf, but that, that sort of concern about being behind because you made a different choice or not finding the value in the same thing other people do is, is really a big part of, of for lessons experience, at least in the first half of the story. Right. And we know that Frick is already in charge of everything, that he is the, the uber boss from the moment that Forlesson gets to work. Because, of course, right, he's told that he's late, even though he's actually a little bit early. But Mr. Frick likes everyone to be super duper early. Right. So he's already in charge at that point. So it is difficult to kind of uh, make all of this line up. And of course, I think Wolf doesn't want it to line up. I think it were, it's meant to be a little bit uncomfortable and jarring for us as we try to puzzle this out. Yeah, it's definitely something to to puzzle over. I'd like to transition us into talking about home life, which is kind of the next situation that Forlesson deals with. It's the second biggest one in the book, I think. And um, I kind of want to start talking about the retirement party as a way to transition to home life. That, as we said, Forlesson's desire to die at home rather than at the office is sort of frowned upon, or at least he's patronized about that by a secretary. Um and one thing Forlesson realizes through, you know, in the course of his day is that he spends more time with his workmates and coworkers and knows them better than he knows his wife. Yet, when he leaves at his retirement party, he seems to have made no impact on, on anyone there. They don't really talk to him. They're there because there's free booze at the end of the day or whatever time of day they're experiencing. And he leaves and goes home, and his wife is already dead, and and he can't see her again. He's seen her twice in his entire life. So what is Wolf really saying about this type of attitude towards work and home that seems to be the result of social pressure rather than any really written rule? MPP is a hell of a prison 
for me. That's how it makes me feel as a reader anyway. It feels more like hell to me than Port Mimizan ever felt, even though that is explicitly hell, right? But even still, as much as going to work at MPP, as much as being in MPP for you know an eight-hour workday would crush my soul, the thing that really breaks me is the lines that Forlesson has about having his time with his wife, his ability to be with his family stolen from him by the fact that he has to go to this job and that if he doesn't go to this job, the robot police people will probably shoot him for that, that he has no choice, that even if he could devise a way where he could actually spend more time with his wife, spend his days with his wife or get his wife to maybe come work at MPP so they could meet for meet, meet for lunch in the cafeteria, share coffee together during the day, see each other more than they do, that even if he could devise that plan, the system is not going to allow him to, to do that. That is really what, what crushes me and it makes me, me cry when I read this story because I... That is an awful, awful existence. And it's so clear that this was Wolf's experience working for Procter & Gamble, right? The, the, the pathos with which he writes these lines, I mean, it feels lived, right? And we know that this is a story that he's, he's published after he's made this, this job switch to being an editor at Plant Engineering. But I think we're seeing here one of the reasons why Wolf wanted to make that choice was to leave a job like this and go do something else. And that one of the things that probably motivated him was being able to actually see his family, to actually see the people who mattered to him. Right. And it's just so, for me, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see that his wife doesn't even seem to want him around. She likes to worry about him, but she doesn't like him being there. She doesn't really want him to touch her the exchange between them over lunch about well you know if you're sitting around and worrying all day and the kids are at school uh, i've made an effort to come home to see you uh, during the day i know i have to go back you don't want me here that's clear but could you couldn't you have made a better lunch like that sort of like no teamsmanship no partnership there just this like you go to work to provide for me and the kids and the loss of identity for the wife in this story is also i think a really really tragic piece that wolf does in a very short period of time but it's you know that for me is like really really difficult to read because that that fight that they have that exchange doesn't feel like it came from nowhere i mean they're they're, they're it just feels so true to the characters um, and, you know, I don't want to ex- expand that to Wolf's life, but it just feels so lived in this home life where Forlesson is alienated even from his own home and has no real companionship at work. He's entirely alone in the world. And yeah, so he has to ask the question at the end. I'm suffering. This whole life was suffering. Was it worth it? And, and so I guess I have a, a question for you is that you know, although Forlesson acknowledges his suffering and, and we see that his curiosity is a big part of his character early in the story, but that kind of fades away. Do you think it's easier for Forlesson to be at work so he doesn't have to really encounter any of these difficult questions about a life, about his life? Or do you think that he would actually prefer to live a life where he can explore these difficult questions about meaning and existence and have the love of a family? Because by the end of the story, I'm not 100% sure what he would prefer, the way he completely compromises and talks in ski metaphors and plays bet your life and 
uh, all this stuff. So I just w- wanted to get your take on that, Glenn. Well, I think that's the that's the character arc of For Lesson, right? That that when he starts out as a young person, he sees the world for what it is, and and wishes the world could be better than it is because he sees that that should be possible. He also knows what he wants out of life and understands that this is really not it. He also feels very much like he made no choices to get here either, that the world just kind of propelled him into this. And he does not like it. And there's a real scathing critique of every aspect of it. But then, yeah, as we go on, as he gets older, as he's he's aging 15, 20 years in the, the job, he has realized that it's easier for him if he plays along, if he just nods, if he laughs at the jokes, if he uses the same the same language, the same metaphorical language, that if, if he fits in, right? Whereas in the morning, his, the desk is chiding him for not bothering to try to fit in. But I would actually point to their conversation at lunch, the conversation between Forlesson and his wife Edna at lunch, where he tells her what he's been feeling at work at the morning and how he has lots of stuff he can do, but none of it actually matters. There's no point to any of it and that that is unfulfilling for him. He's trying to bond with her over this sense that they're both actually trapped in these roles that they did not choose, that they just woke up in and were told to do in this orientation manual. He's trying to bond with her over that. But her reaction to this is to be scared that if he's displaying that attitude at work, that he's going to get fired. And of course, if he gets fired, she and her children will starve, right? They will die, as she's been told. So because she has that real serious material fear, she actually can't bond with him about what he's experiencing at work. And so when he gets back, he just shuts that off. And it seems like, or at least publicly shuts that off. And he's going to play ball, right, to, to use the, the the metaphor of fields here, and try to, to fit in, because that's easier than not fitting in. Right. It's, it's kind of about these sorts of primary relationships. Both Edna and Emmanuel Furlesson believe that their primary relationships that form their meaning are with each other, but they're not. When Furlesson returns to work, he realizes his wife is a stranger. She doesn't recognize him. He's And he's a stranger to hit her. She doesn't recognize him when he comes home. And he spends more time with the people at work and maybe knows more about them, but he doesn't know them really well. And that's clear by the time we get to the retirement party. And he realizes that his wife's primary relationship isn't even with the kids it's with like home management techniques it's with uh keep, keeping up with the joneses it's with did i follow the rules right did it did we do this did i do that and i swept the house right i got the kids off to school i made breakfast i brewed coffee for lunch it's just entirely driven by the the right technique and she is angry and maybe upset that having the right praxis in regards to housekeeping hasn't led to any fulfillment for her. So that's really disappointing. But she's also terrified because she's also not getting paid for that work, that if her husband steps out of line, that it's more social pressure from your home to keep you at work. Because if you step out of line, you're out of work. And then she loses everything that she's been working for and has been promised that if she does all this stuff for her husband and the 10 ways to please a man and whatever, whatever else is, <laughs> is out there, that she'll be provided for. And, and this is a really kind of scathing social critique of the promises of 
the promises that society offers to both men and women that for anybody who's gone through them a little bit um, are extraordinarily unfulfilling for, for most of us. One of the things that Wolf is doing here is pointing out that both of them, the husband and wife in this partnership, are not having any of their emotional needs met by the existence that they have to lead in this system, but it's happening in different ways, right? There's a a dichotomy here. We as humans are social creatures. We like to be, we need to be around people. We need to have a a community and it's important to to us to have a a meaningful and and significant role in that community. We've created a society that doesn't really have that, that that takes that away from most of us and in a, in a number of ways. And here in this story, circa 1970, we're seeing how that manifests here, which is and, and, and so Wolf is really asking the question of, is it worse to be totally alone and just not have any social life, any community at all to just sit at home and wait for people to come back and then realize that they're kind of strangers to you because they've been having totally different experiences while they've been out in the world. Is that worse than having to go out in the world and be around people you don't like and spending your time doing something that doesn't matter for the people you don't actually like and having no purpose? Which of those is worse or are they equally bad, right? Right, and and I think the real crux of the problem here, and I and I've brought up uh, the technological society by by Jacques Ellul in our recap episodes, um, and that that's going to play into my full reading of the story. Um, I'm not going to get too deep into it, don't worry. But it's that bo- all of their relationships are mediated through method and through the promise that practicing certain methods in the world or at home w- will yield outcomes that will benefit them. And that's true. The house is clean. They have food to eat. They can brew coffee any time of day. He can drive to work. He can interact with other people. But the second that that mediation goes away through method, when Forleson is trying to have a real conversation about his wife, when they both say we have nothing, that this is nothing, that the outcome of method is just more method. Try harder. Try something different. Do sit-ups this way, you know, <laughs> do more pull-ups, whatever whatever it is, you know, like learn how to cook with mayonnaise. It doesn't really matter. It's just that they don't have relationships outside of that sort of mediation. And it's, and Wolf is showing that in this story that if, if, if that's all there is to life, then, then it, it is nothing. Then that's nothing. And we do have a romantic relationship that stands in contrast to that of uh, Emmanuel and Edna, and that's all through the, the character of Miss Fawn, who is uh, an unmarried young woman. When we meet her in the, the morning, she's Miss Fawn. Uh, then in the afternoon, she's Mrs. Frost. So she's gotten married in the, the meantime. I guess that's what she did with her lunch break. But also in that meantime, Fields has has died. And when Miss Vaughn is giving this information to for a lesson and therefore to us uh, as well, she explains that she and Fields had a kind of romantic uh, affair. It was never a sexual affair, but that they had uh, emotional romantic feelings for each other and had talked about that from time to time. And now Miss Vaughn has married someone else who works at MPP. 
But she she expl- but she tells for a lesson that of course she's told Mr. Frost all about Ed Fields and their relationship. And so what we see in the character of Miss Vaughn is that uh, even though she's critical, especially earlier in the day, that she's critical of for a lesson for wanting to to really try to get as many moments with his wife as possible and so not showing up to work super early and and other little you know snide remarks that she makes she's trying to find uh, love in her life as well but she's doing it at work right because for her this is this is the place where she is going to spend the bulk of her time just as it is for for lesson and so if she's going to have any romance in her life if she's going to have love if she's going to find someone to be a partner with it it's going to happen here and it takes her several tries for that. And we see in the background, too, something like this happening with, with the leadership problem, number 105, that something is going on with the way that men and women are interacting with each other. Young men and young women are interacting with each other in this office as, as well. So Wolf is looking at all the different ways, or maybe at least several different ways, that this type of life, this type of social organization that we have, uh, affects people's ability to have families and to have meaningful partnerships and that there's all sorts of obstacles that this kind of institution that we've created uh, makes for us to have that kind of of partnership. Well, let's move on now to talking about civic life or life in community or an organized community by a government or something like that. I'm using it pretty broadly here for this story because it's pretty tricky to kind of tease out what kind of civic reality they're living in. The first glimpse we really get of civic life has to do with the rules surrounding driving. As I mentioned in our recaps, it seems to me as though rather than drive, rather than the car being a tool of for lessons, for lesson is really living in service to the rules that govern driving and also in service to the car itself. You know, we see that, for example, that when he breaks one of the rules that govern driving, he's meets He's forced to interact with a robot policeman, and that policeman has a car that has a, quote, fantastic design, a mingling of fabulous beasts with plants and what appears to be wholly abstract symbols, end quote. And we see how being curious about how society is materially constructed is off the table, and you also can't pick up hitchhikers. You can really only go between work and home, and you can only interact with your neighbors on the right. But really, the the rules about going to the house on the right is only if the house is empty. So it's all this weird sort of stuff going on about society and how locked down it is. I want to ask you if you had any thoughts about what the symbols of on the police car represented, or if it really is wholly abstract what Wolf is getting at. What are the beasts and plants doing on this police car? And what do the police, what does the robot policeman suggest to you about this civic organization? One of the things that really stands out to me in this story is that aside from the RoboCop, there's not actually a lot of civics or civic institutions in this story. And I think this is also right in line with what Wolf is doing in Hour of Trust, where he's just replaced government with these corporations. The corporations become the ruling institutions of our lives. And certainly that seems to be, in in, in some sense anyway, the, the case for, for lesson here, where what really matters is MPP. And as far as we can tell, the civic institutions, uh, law and order, government, exist only to facilitate 
workers getting to their corporations, right? That the, the roads exist only for this purpose and that the, the robocops are there just to make sure that people don't stop, that they get to work and that they get to work on time and that everything is, is neat and orderly, right? They, that's, that's all they're for is to make sure that the corporate system is actually functioning. And so I think that what we're seeing here, like in Our Trust, is Wolf looking at the pieces of our society and seeing how they, they work together and what they're actually for. And in some ways, this is remarkably prescient, right? I think the question of what are police actually for? What do they do in our society? Why do we have police is, has become an actually a pretty significant part of our public discourse in America. It's certainly factoring in our uh, presidential election right now that people are having these conversations. I think Wolf is asking this same question here, uh, and it's absolutely fascinating. And I think in in our time, this is this sort of what is, what are the existence of police for? How does our criminal justice system function? Is awfully tied to lobbying in our political discourse today. If if you're if you're listening closely, you know there is a concern that the private prison uh, industrial complex spends so much money lobbying to have laws written that benefit them, that allow more people to be put in prison and expand their operations. I mean, I don't know if I want to live in a world where the expansion of private prison operations is a good way to build society. It should be <laughs> the opposite. You should be, uh, you should be making prison smaller because you're solving these societal problems that lead to criminality or people acting out of desperation in other ways. You're providing them other avenues. And this conversation about lobbying actually comes up in the conversation with Abraham Beal. So I think we can get into that in just a minute, but I just want to ask more broadly, Glenn, what sort of civil, what sort of threat to the civil order is represented in the picking up of the hitchhiker, Abraham Beal? And are there, is there like a real hitchhiker problem here? Are there these free wandering spirits who have real opinions about the functioning of the world that workers shouldn't listen to because they might get the wrong idea. What's your take on the whole Abraham Beal character? Right. I think Hitchhiker here stands in for people who've opted out of this ordering of society. We've seen Wolf think about this before, right? I think you know here, even in the, the, the 70s, uh, we might be thinking of, of hippies, right? As people who have said, yeah, I've taken a look at this this corporate world, this uh, maybe congressional military industrial complex uh, that we've instituted following the Second World War. And uh, no thanks, I'd actually rather just go have a job uh, taming taming wild Mustangs. That seems better to me. And, uh, you know, having a car seems like a real burden. Look at all the stupid rules that you have to follow. Um, I'll just ask someone who already has a car for a ride. Right. So I think these are, so I think Hitchhiker here is standing in for dissident, right? Someone who has opted out of this society. Whether there are more of them than, than just Abraham Beale is unclear. It may actually be that these rules are really all about Abraham Beale, that he's kind of a singular uh, phenomenon here in this world. But we'll talk more about that when we get into the question of what actually is this life that Four Lesson has woken up in? What is this world he's woken up in? But definitely, these are dissidents or outsiders is the idea. And you shouldn't pick them up because, yes, you, you don't want to be contaminated by them, but also because they need to be left where they are so that the RoboCops can deal with them is my sense of what the, the rules are for that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, the, the Abraham Beale section is really fantastic, and I wonder if Unruh Wolf is 
really upset about the amount of money that's pouring into politics and the sorts of power that that these corporations are gaining over legislation. And that's clearly a big part of the story. And I think you aptly pointed out that when that happens, the, the, the sort of world that for lesson lives in is that the civic order is designed to support the corporate order. And uh, I think you really nailed that. You helped clear up some some of the thoughts I had about this as well. One thing that really is tragic to me about this story is that that curiosity itself is a threat to the civil order and that that having ideas and talking about them is also a threat. That stepping out of line, uh, saying you don't agree with an idea or you don't think this person should be fired from work or whatever is really threatening to the status quo and and that everything is designed to support the status quo, which really only benefits a few people. And it's and it's just really fascinating to see Wolf playing with these ideas and putting this character, Emmanuel Forlesson, in this world and then draining him of all of that, that now all he wants to do is keep his job, go home, and avoid the police. Or if he's feeling really desperate, do a suicide by cop. It's a really, really dark picture of the society that, that for lesson lives in. Well, that kind of sums up the, the civic life piece for me. But there are a few outstanding world-building questions that really don't fall into some of these categories that are more about the speculative fiction element of the story. We see that on numerous occasions there are real confusions surrounding identity. We see this with Forlesson and just about every other man that he meets with the initials EF, uh, particularly with his superiors with Frick in the morning. There's this recognition, even though he knows it's not, he knows it's not himself. Um, he looks in the mirror and thinks it's broken and his wife calls him a vampire. If the mirror's not working, that might come up in a little bit in our discussion. That might come up in just a little bit. Um, we see it with Adam Bean and Abraham Beale being having the same face uh, for less than experiences this with Miss Fawn slash Mrs. Frost and Miss Fed. Um, and we see this with all the sort of mural mirrors and windows and all these portals that distort time and make for less than wonder even who he is or if he's these other people, or if they're him. This is, a, this is a really strange element of the story. But one thing we didn't mention in the recap is that m- model is that model pattern products they make model patterns, which are castings that are used to create the template of whatever needs to be mass manufactured. And I get the sense that from the way people try to assign nicknames to one another, you know, for lesson, the manual for lesson quickly becomes Manny. Um, and all these people who are in the EF generation give each other nicknames to differentiate themselves, that they do that really just to differentiate themselves from one another. And so my question for you here, Glenn, is that do you think that people here are, for all intents and purposes, clones of one another or that there's something else going on? Are they, is each generation made out of the same model? Um, what, what did you make of this identity confusion and problem with windows and mirrors in terms of identity? Well, I don't know that all of these people are clones in the real science fiction story sense of that, that this is a story about 
clones and that cracking that is going to matter to a reading of the story. But I do think that Wolf has in mind here the, the fact that there's a real corporate uniformity, a real sameness of, of corporate employees, that that's something that's valued uh, following the, the Second World War, uh, that that's a big part of the, the 50s, the 60s, uh, the 70s, and I think even really the, the 80s for sure. That everyone's going to wear basically the the same style and cut of suit, the same size of tie, probably even the same patterns. Your colors might be a little bit different, but they're all mostly going to look the same. You're going to have the the same haircut, and you're all going to shave, right? There's no you know variety of hairstyles, no variety of, of facial hair, variety of, of of clothing. None of that is is really possible in in this world. And I think that that's something that Wolf is is wanting to call attention to here is that that people's identities are being squashed out, that there's no way to really express who you are uh, in this world. Not that you necessarily need clothing in order to do that, but that the thing that you are told that through subtle reinforcements is that fitting in, that looking the same as everybody else, that not standing out, that not being an individual is the only way to survive in this world. And that is not good for for us as people, right? This is not about individuals with souls. This is just about individuals as cogs in a, in a machine. People, people who aren't individuals at all is the, the value of that. Right. To be able to look across a room and see that everybody looks just about the same is an easy way to convince yourself if you're in charge of a, a corporation or if you're in charge of uh, some sort of organization, the military is one of them, that relies on ideological uniformity in order for the machine of the work to function, of the people doing the work to function. They need to be indoctrinated and initiated into how everything works. And the uniformity of style is one way of checking that everybody is on board. And this is you see this in big box stores and retail stores and the military and in the corporate dress guides of the you know 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. What's worse I think is what's worse is what's happening today is that we have all this you know quote unquote freedom of expression but now the ideological checks have to be more manufactured. The the leaders can't just pretend that everybody believes what they believe in order to make the company run, they have to ask them. And so like the, there's more of a sense of thought policing and saying the right thing, which Wolf does also address in this story. But that like quick check of scanning the room and saying like, everybody's on board because they're all dressing the same is gone. And you can kind of hide, you can be in camouflage in a place like that. Whereas expressing yourself in some way doesn't mean there aren't limitations on placed on you by a company about expressing uh, yourself or having some authentic creativity or expression of that at work. Um, And it's just, it's very strange the way this sort of stuff has shifted around in the past 15 years or so. And the world that Wolf is writing about here is explicitly a post-World War II world. This idea of this type of uniformity, this idea of everyone wearing a type of uniform to work with required hairstyles and facial hairstyles, it grows out of the fact that everyone is coming into this world following the Second World War, following military service, right? That uh, the world looked a little bit different prior to this. And then following the Second World War, people are coming out of this military service and just running their corporations as if they're still, as, as if it's still the army. And that really defined this world for 
two generations that really did only change when you and I have, have entered the, the, the workforce now. And I remember for me, actually, as a, as a teenager in the 1990s, that this was a, a big deal for my father, who worked for a, a big corporation and wore this uniform. I uh, did not like that I had the sweetest 1990s ponytail that, uh, that anyone ever had because I wasn't fitting in. And he was never able to articulate why he had this problem. I also was unable to empathize with why someone might have a problem with my hair. And of course, as a teenager, that only reinforced my desire to, to you know, keep growing that ponytail for forever. Uh, but I, I, I understand now that 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 was a sign of of, of having no interest in and participating in the world. This is a sign that I might turn out to be one of these, these hitchhikers who is going to not have the security of this type of job that, uh, that uh, in some ways my family was expressing the same anxieties that we see Edna for lesson expressing uh, to Emmanuel for lesson at lunch that you've got to fit in or you're going to lose everything and we're all going to, to starve. Right. And so there was a real visible manifestation in this, in the way people looked at and what they wore to work. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to sort of answer that question. And the to answer the question about the uniformity of identity that in this story, and even for Lesson's own confusion about his identity, is that being around these people and being forced to speak as they speak and pretend to work and try to remain to look busy actually makes him confused about who he is as a person, about his passions, what he wants to do, what his desires are, because he's spending so much of his energy and creating habits around fitting in that he's experiencing a loss of identity himself. And we see that from the moment he wakes up as an adult in this story. There's one more sort of centric question here, which is, you know, we see everybody governing themselves by following technical manuals and outlines that are reinforced with soft power and threats, explicit threats for stepping out of line. We don't really know who's writing these or to whose benefit or why they're doing it. Wolf is kind of uh, satirizing the way culture functions here a little bit. But I talked a little bit about how I see these as examples of method and technique mediating people's relationships with each other so that their primary relationship is really with the technique or method that will yield an outcome that benefits them at maybe at the cost of a, a, a meaningful relationship or a meaningful interaction. But I'm just wondering what you got out of the presence of these technical manuals and orders that are, that are reinforced in this way in this story. Well, this is Wolf making explicit something that is implicit in our lives, right? There are rules, there are codes of, of conduct that we that we follow, or at least that we should follow, or at least there are consequences to which there are consequences of not following that can come in a, a variety of, of ways, you know, soft power ways, as well as hard power ways. And Wolf is simply making that explicit here by saying, yep, here's a book where you can find them. Here's, uh, here's a, a list of instructions about how you should behave while you're in your car. One of the rules of, of this world, one of the rules of our society is don't make eye contact with other people while you're driving. I think we probably all actually follow this rule, right? Without even knowing that it's a rule, but yet the simple fact that it's not an explicit rule that we've been told, that it's not you know in the American Constitution or something like that. It's not a Pennsylvania state law that you're not allowed to do that. Nonetheless, it is a rule. And Wolf is examining that, right? He's looking at what are the rules of our, of our lives. And I think in particular, wanting to point out that these rules that are just social norms rather than actual codified 
laws uh, maybe need some reevaluating. That that they might not actually serve the good. They might not serve us well. That they might serve some other interest entirely, and that perhaps we should reconsider them. Perhaps we should reevaluate them. And of course, step one is acknowledging that they exist to begin with, right? And I think he's showing us that for Lesson is a character who does that implicitly and even seems to scoff at the fact that they're actually written down in these binders for him to to read. Everywhere he goes, he's kind of discarding these. He's skimming them or just not looking at them at all and being chided for it mostly by Miss Vaughn. But, you know, this is something that's a recurring motif throughout the whole story. Before we transition to to sort of the other non-world-building questions, let's just sum up the sort of world that Wolf has built here, if you can do it in two or three sentences, Glenn. What what is this world that we've been examining for the past 45 minutes or so? Well, this is a, a Kafka-esque nightmare, right? It's 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 the post-Second World War America. It's the, 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 the middle class and upper middle class corporate social world of that. And what Wolf is doing is looking at how that world is constructed. He's, and he's exploring it from uh, a, a number of, of lenses and through a number of ways, right? He's looking at what it's like to actually be at work, uh, a work that doesn't actually create anything, right? You're not uh, making anything with clay. You're not producing anything for someone to go use. You are shuffling papers around. You're going to meetings and uh, taking phone calls and trying to look busy without actually having anything to do. So he's looking at, at what that does to a person. He's looking at, as you've divided it up very nicely, Brandon, then what that does to our home lives and how these things are reinforced how the things that are in magazines that are aimed at housewives reinforce the fact that men have to go to these jobs no matter how pointless it makes them feel, no matter how bad it makes them feel, they have to, to go to them and they're gonna and that gets reinforced in the home for them as well. Even though then at work they're being told that they should care more about work than their their home life, right? And then Wolf is also looking at how the civic institutions uh, function in this as well, seeing that uh, at least from a certain point of view that that police maybe exist only to serve the needs of these corporations of of jobs of making sure that people can get to work uh, and that they do get to work and that that's it, right? And that they're there to make sure that people aren't shiftlessly just walking around that there's no um, uh, vagrancy. Here, right? That people have jobs and they're going to them and aren't questioning things. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what I would say this story is about. Well, I think that's right. <laughs> but there's more to this story than just the the world building, as there's in any wolf story. But there was this story is is really focused on. I think as you put uh, as you put well, Glenn, wolf examining the impacts of the way we organize society on the world. So this is in a weird sense, really just a big world building story. And so we'll leave things there for this episode. And then next time we'll get into the specifics. We'll really look at some of the puzzles and mysteries, ask what this world is and what it's for. And think about what Wolf wants us to get from the story. So for now, that's going to do it. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects as always at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the speculative world of For Lesson. Yeah, there's plenty to talk about, even though we haven't really gotten into the, the puzzles and mysteries or any of the, the religious illusions. I mean, for one thing, I don't think that we spent nearly enough time on the experience of women at MPP. And, and that's something I think we should really do on the forum. So next time, we'll be back with our really, truly final episode on For Lesson. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.